You are listening to a Wavel Room podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go for your podcasts. But if that's not enough for you, head to wavelroom.com where you can read our articles, you can follow us on social media, where you can come and join us at one of our live events. This war talk is delivered by Professor Vander Wilcox. Vander is the adjunct assistant professor of history at John Cabot University in Rome. Vander completed a doctorate of philosophy at the University of Oxford in 2006 before moving to Rome, where she now teaches at John Cabot University. She's published on Italian military leadership, training and battlefield performance, as well as the popular experience and memory of the First World War in Italy. A member of the International Society for First World War Studies since 2003, she published a book on morale and the Italian army during the First World War. In this talk, Vanda presents to us on how not to manage morale, focusing on Italy in the First World War. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. It's my first time I've been uh, invited here to all shop, so it's all new for me. Uh, the first thing I want to say is, yes, I'm going to be talking about the Italian army, and yes, I have heard all the jokes. As soon as you say to people that you do Italian military history, they immediately pop up with a series of jokes, and I've heard them all. Um, when I first started working on this topic, I guess I had maybe an idea that I might rehabilitate the Italian army's reputation slightly. Um, that's no longer part of my plan. Um, what I really want to talk about more than the specifics of the Italian army is about how I think morale operates and then use the Italian army in the First World War as a kind of case study to show how I think we could think about morale more generally. So what I'm hoping to do is that as an audience who are specifically interested in military things more generally, try to speak to some of those issues that would also be relevant to other time periods and other circumstances and not just specifically Italian issues, although obviously that's the, the kind of material I'm drawing on. So I want to start off with why morale, and morale is one of the oldest subjects in the study of war from classical periods onwards, and what's really interesting about morale is that as many people have studied it or written about it, we'll find as many different conclusions. There is still no clear consensus, even really, on what morale is. It's something that has been studied and written about endlessly from so many different perspectives, and yet we don't seem to be able to come to um, a clear consensus as to what it is and how it works. I think the most that we can really get that everybody agrees on is that it's very important. Um, we can certainly find plenty of quotes. We've got uh, Clausewitz, you know, this is one of the most important factors in war. There's actually a wonderful quote from uh, Tolstoy in War and Peace, who writes about morale very extensively. Um, and he says, in military affairs, the strength of an army is the product of its mass and some unknown X. That unknown quantity, that factor X, is the spirit of the army. The greater or lesser readiness to fight and fight uh, face danger felt by all the men composing an army, quite independently of whether they are or not fighting under the command of a genius, whether they are with cudgels or with rifles, men who want to fight will always put themselves in the most advantageous conditions for fighting. So uh, I, I could sort of reel off a series of quotes along these lines that the most critical factor, or one of the most critical factors, at least, uh, in the outcome of battle is morale. But... Beyond that, um, authors have tended not to agree on what it is and how we ought to understand it. And it's been studied from many different angles, obviously from historical angles, but from by sociologists, from sociological approaches, by psychologists trying to find a kind of almost scientific psychological explanation. It's been studied from, you know, from religious perspectives and from many different points of view. Um, and so I think this tells us, I mean, this is a way of seeing how important it is. The fact that it has been studied so often and from so many perspectives should, if nothing else, tell us that it's, it's very significant. Um, and also, I think it tells us that it's very complicated. Um, if we can't achieve consensus, that must in itself tell us something about the nature of morale, which is that it's uh, vague, hard to define, hard to pin down. And also, I would say that it functions differently in different circumstances. Now, that's to say, when you read these multiple different studies, these multiple different points of view, why are they all coming to different conclusions? Why are there so many different explanations being offered? Is it because some of these explanations are wildly wrong? 
is it possible that all of these different models, all of these different ideas that are being proposed could still have validity? Well, if we take as a basis the idea that morale is inherently going to operate in slightly different ways, in different circumstances, in different time periods, in different wars, in different contexts, and with different people involved, we can start to get some idea of why there have been so many different explanations. Um, I want to put forward, therefore, the idea that um, when we study morale, it's been done in two main ways. And both of these two main ways, I think, are only half of the picture. There's one school of thought that says to study how an army's morale operates, we study the institution. What is the army doing? How is it organized? What are its leaders doing? What's its training, its leadership, its institutional structure? And we can study the army and see what it's doing and then try and see, is that going to explain how morale works? The other school of thought has said we need to study the soldiers. We need to study the troops. We need to see who are they, where do they come from, what do they believe in, how do they feel, what do they want. And if we study that, then we'll understand how morale operates. But both of these approaches to me seem to be kind of partial. My model that I would propose is that morale is really a dance, a dance between these two sides. Morale exists at the intersection between the institution and the people who make up that institution. That if we only look at one side, what is the army doing? What is the institution doing? Or we only look at the other side. How do the soldiers feel? What do they believe in? What do they care about? We're only seeing half of the picture. It takes two to tango. So morale is the, is the dance between these two factors. And only if we see both sides of the picture and try to bring them both together, can we really start to understand how morale works on the battlefield or indeed more generally. Um, and because of this, if we think of morale as what's happening at the intersection between the institution and the people inside the institution, then we can start to understand why people have tried to explain it in so many different ways and come up with so many different answers, because there are many different ways that institutions can work, there are an infinite number of different types of people and ways that people could operate, so inevitably we have very flexible variables. If instead of trying to come up with one model that fits everything, we see it always as a dance between the two sides, then we can start to see why we've got so many different um, studies, different approaches. So I'm, I'm gonna try and explain that a bit more concretely by looking at morale in the, uh, in the Italian army in the First World War and explain to you what I mean by this dance between the, the two sides. Before we do that, I think it might be helpful to try to define morale, what is it? Um, this is something, again, which we've had many, many different definitions. Um, so I'm going to offer you mine. I don't think it's about the mood of an army or the spirit of an army in, in, a, in an emotional sense. Um, an army, for example, or, or troops could have uh, a great mood. They could be very excited and happy because they're about to go home on leap. That doesn't mean that they're high, they've got high morale going into battle. There's their mood of being happy because they're going home on leave has nothing to do with readiness to fight. Equally, Troops could be quite grumpy, but still fight effectively and be willing to do their duty. So I don't think mood is necessarily very helpful, as it's sometimes been um, suggested. Uh, morale has to be measured in relation to the institution's goals, right? Uh, if we have very strong, high spirits, very uh, committed group of people, whose goals are not in line with the goals of the institution, we can't say that their morale is high. A great example here is workers on strike. If you have a group of workers who are on strike, is their morale high? Well, if you're a trade union leader and they're committed to the strike, you'd say, yeah, from the perspective of the union, their morale is high. If you're the employer, then you say, no, their morale is low because they're disaffected. So morale doesn't exist in a vacuum. It is directed towards a goal. And a strong, determined spirit, which is directed in the opposite direction from the goal of the institution, can't be defined as high morale. So when we're thinking about morale, we always have to see where is it being aimed. If you have a mutiny and your mutineers are all very enthusiastically committed to the mutiny, their morale from the perspective of the army is, is low. But from the, from the kind of group spirit perspective, we could say they might still have excellent group spirit. So morale is always directed towards the goals of an authority or of an institution. So what is crucial to morale is 
Willingness to perform assigned tasks. You can perform your assigned tasks grumpily if you want to, but if you're willing to do so and to put your best effort in, then actually we could say that your morale is high. So morale isn't about how cheerful you are necessarily. It isn't about uh, enthusiasm. It isn't about feelings necessarily. It's about willingness to perform assigned tasks. That could be the assigned task of going into battle. It could equally be the assigned task of digging a trench, cleaning your boots, whatever it is. Are you willing to get on and do whatever it is that you have been ordered to do by the institution? And actually, I think this is um, a, a useful definition because at a certain point, it doesn't even really matter why you're willing to do the assigned task. Are you willing to go into battle because you're extremely patriotic? Are you willing to go into battle because you know you have no choice? In a way, that doesn't matter. If you're doing it to the best of your ability, your feelings and your motivation matter less than the way that your morale acts out. What matters is that the army can rely on its forces to undertake the actions that they're required to perform to the best of their ability at the times and in the ways that they are ordered to do so. So this maybe is a bit more clinical than some definitions of morale, which seem to focus more on feelings, but I think the feelings are less important than the actual behavior. I mean, after all, why do we care about morale? Because we care about the outcomes, we care about the behavior that it's producing. Okay, it's not about emotional condition. Um, so that would be my definition, willingness to uh, perform assigned tasks. And the army's job, therefore, in managing morale is to generate that willingness to perform assigned tasks. Um, I'd also point out that morale is going to operate somewhat differently under different circumstances. What motivates somebody to join up in the first place versus what motivates somebody in the trenches for 10 months versus what motivates somebody in the heat of battle, those are gonna be three potentially quite different dynamics. We can talk about initial motivation, sustaining motivation and combat motivation as three separate entities. And so when we talk about measures for managing and promoting morale, some of these issues will work very well in one context and not so well in another. Sustaining motivation, for example, let's say you're going to be stuck in a base camp in the middle of nowhere. How do you keep people from getting disaffected? How do you keep people motivated and on task? The things that might produce solid morale under those circumstances might not actually make any difference at all when you're in battle. The things that matter when you're in battle don't necessarily matter at the point of deciding to sign up in the first place. So these different moments, if you like, of a, a soldier's experience are going to function in different ways when it comes to how we think about morale. Um, so why the Italian army as a case study for morale? Well, the Italian army in the First World War is often seen as an example of an army with extremely poor morale. If you know anything about Italy in the First World War, the battle that you are most likely to have heard of is the Battle of Caporetto, which takes place in October 1917, uh, at which the Italian front line is uh, smashed by a joint German-Austrian attack. Um, it's nine German and six Austrian divisions, uh, and they attack in the northeastern sector. They smash through the line with a, a, a sort of dawn attack in the fog, and the Italians are basically routed. In Within 48 hours, they've retreated um, I think it's about 50 miles. Um, by the time that the retreat is uh, completed, it's well over 100 miles that they've retreated. One million Italian citizens are living uh, under occupation. They've lost this huge corner of Italian territory. It's a horrific military defeat. And the reason that this is associated with poor morale is that the Germans and Austrians capture 100,000 prisoners in that operation. And uh, comparable numbers, in, well, in fact, even more um, uh, people flee. So huge numbers of, uh, of Italians desert, they head for home. And uh, it's a moment of total kind of chaos, right? Order, discipline, breakdown utterly for various reasons. And the situation isn't stabilized for nearly three weeks. So because of this, and this is the battle, the big battle that most people outside of Italy know about when they think about Italy in the First World War, when people are thinking of an example of an army with dreadful morale, Italy in the First World War is very often one that would immediately come to mind. So for that reason, I think it's a good case study. And so one of the questions that we might want to think about here is why does morale collapse? Uh, but also, equally interesting to me, 
is what happens next. That happens in October, November 1917. Now, the Italian government approached their allies, Britain and France. They request support, and French and British troops are sent to Italy. But both the Italian from the Italian side and from the Allied side, it is agreed that no Allied troops will enter combat until the line has been stabilised. In other words, French and British troops will not be used to halt the retreat. The Italians have to halt the retreat on their own and resist before any French and British troops can be deployed. So actually, that's what happens. Sometimes we read, oh, you know, France and Britain turn up and save the day. That's not true. The Italians have to fix the mess on their own before any French and British troops are actually permitted to come into the front lines. And from that point, from what looks like a point of complete collapse, through 1918, the Italian army goes through a remarkable process of recovery and stabilisation. So if when we ask about morale in the Italian army, one of the questions we need to think about is why does it crash? We also need to say, how is it possible then to recover it? How is it possible for them to sort their, their selves out, uh, to get out of this mess, to stabilise their position, and then to go on and fight effectively through the remainder of 1918? There's two sides to the story. So um, I don't want to talk too much about Cavaretto. We can talk about that maybe after in questions, or if you're interested. But uh, this is a, the kind of... The introduction, I guess, of why choose this as a case study for thinking about how morale works. Um, so there have been many different um, models of how people thought we should understand morale. Uh, the oldest, I guess, if we go back to the time of Frederick the Great, he thought it was just about discipline. You, high morale troops were disciplined troops, and the way to achieve high morale was simply by imposing an iron discipline. Uh, and that's an idea which, as I'll explain in a moment, the Italians were still quite keen on by the time it came to the First World War. Other explanations have been offered, such as, for example, the primary group, the idea that men fundamentally fight for the people in their unit. Um, another very often posed idea is the idea that people fight for ideology, whether it's patriotism or uh, the cause, but people fight for some kind of motivating idea. The primary group and ideology are uh, two ways of thinking about what motivates people in battle, which were particularly popular, I guess, in the mid-20th century. And especially after the Second World War, the idea of the primary group, the idea that people fought for the men in their unit uh, as the most important of all motivating factors was the dominant explanation for a long time. And I, can think, I think there are good reasons for that. It's, um, it's psychologically very satisfying to think that there's this very profound human factor and that human bonds lie at the heart of what makes for a successful military unit. And it's a theory which is strongly supported um, in sort of veterans' memoirs, for example, when we read what people write about their own war experience. Subsequently, people very often want to emphasize this idea of these human bonds with their unit as their, their key motivating factor. <coughs> but there's some problems with this theory. Um, one is that uh, strong horizontal bonds of that kind may weaken vertical bonds. If your primary loyalty is to your comrade, then where is your loyalty to your commanding officer? Where is your obedience to the institution? Uh, this can easily actually lead to collective disobedience to even in, in extremes to mutiny. It can also lead you to disaffection. If your primary motivating force is to your comrades and three quarters of them are slaughtered in battle, where does that leave your motivation? And if in that circumstance, you're then, your unit is then filled with replacements. Again, where are your primary motivating forces if a bunch of strangers suddenly turn up? Is all of your motivation gone? So this idea of the primary group as the key explanation has some problems. And in the Italian case, it's very hard to see this as the key motivating force for soldiers in the First World War because of the simple way the Italian army was organised. Uh, if you know anything about Italian history, you'll know that Italy is a relatively modern nation. Italian unification only took place in 1861, and before that was divided into multiple smaller states. The people in the different regions of Italy often spoke extremely diverse dialects, to the extent that they often couldn't even understand one another. If someone from Sicily meets someone from Treviso, they may not even, uh, if they're speaking dialect, be able to understand what one another was saying. So you might think that the logical thing to do would be to have locally recruited units so that men were fighting with people from their same region. But no, the Italian government in the late 19th and early 20th century did not trust the citizens not to rebel. 
They thought if we put a bunch of Sicilians together and arm them, they might launch an uprising against the state. So they deliberately created a system of recruitment where people were brought from all over the country to try and meld them into Italians within the institution of the army. The advantage of that is you're not going to get these little local armies that could launch a rebellion. The disadvantage of that is that you get this incredibly disparate group of people. In some cases, we get uh, regiments where, where men have been drawn from 25 different locations around the country. And this really undermines the principle of creating a strong primary group right from the start. It's extremely difficult to have these kind of strong horizontal bonds when people are really divided by language, by culture, by traditions, and until recently had actually been part of rival states, right? Um, so there are, many, uh, there are many problems with this uh, kind of primary group explanation. Um, I'm going to argue there's four main areas that the army can try to improve morale. I want to talk first about what the army can do, and then I'm going to talk about the Italian soldiers and how they responded to it and experienced that. So we get this idea of uh, the dance um, metaphor that I referred to earlier. So these four areas that I think we can see the army trying to manage morale. The first is leadership and command. The second is the provision of positive incentives. The third is through military discipline. And the fourth uh, is what I'm terming creating combat readiness. So I'll talk briefly about these four different areas and then I'll talk about the soldiers and how they respond to these army efforts to, uh, to promote high morale. So leadership and command culture and kind of army organization in general, this is an area which historically has always been understood as being very important for morale, and certainly the Italian army in the First World War supports that, in that for most of the war, the army is commanded by a man who is completely uninterested in morale, and there is a direct correlation between his utter neglect of morale and the low morale that we see. So this is uh, Luigi Cadorna. He is, uh, if you haven't heard of him, uh, <clears throat> a fascinating character. He's from an aristocratic uh, military background. His father had been a general and his grandfather before him. He was sent away to military boarding school aged nine. Um, <clears throat> he was destined always to be a general and that's what he does. Um, he's a really, just a piece of work, right? He's, he's grumpy, he's touchy, he gets offended at the slightest little thing. He's incredibly self-important. He doesn't trust anybody. He won't delegate any jobs to anybody else. He thinks that either he has to do them or nobody else. He won't communicate with people. He's jealous that people are gonna st steal his ideas. Um, he's an incredible snob. He has no time even for middle-class people. The only aristocrats have any value in his life. And um, he's a basically a total disaster to have uh, in charge of almost anything from his just in terms of character. And he never thought he was going to get the top job. He becomes chief of the general staff uh, in July 1914. In July 1914, just as everyone else is focused on the July crisis, just as the First World War is about to kick off, the Italian chief of general staff dies and they have to hastily appoint someone new. And this is not a good time to be changing the top job in the army. And they don't really have the time or the luxury of thinking very carefully about who to select. And they select Luigi Cadorna partly because he's the oldest general. He's got seniority. And they, they can't afford, in this moment of European crisis, to do a more careful job of thinking about who's the right man for the position. So they appoint Cadorna. He never expected to get the top job. He'd been passed over for it in the past precisely because of his personality. And suddenly there he is thrust into the limelight at the end of July 1914. And he's the man in charge, and he's going to remain in charge until he's sacked during the Battle of Caporetto because of the disaster that he has created. And the climate that he creates, the leadership right from the very top, is of critical importance for the morale of the army and above all for the morale of the officer corps. So one of the things I'd like to suggest is that the morale of the officers is something which we often don't talk about. We talk about troop morale, and we think about the ordinary fighting man, or today, of course, also the ordinary fighting woman. But the morale of officers often gets ignored. Officers are supposed to be there to cultivate the morale of others, but they too have morale. And the, the morale of Italian officers is extremely poor because of the institutional culture which Cadorna creates. And perhaps the simplest way to see this is that in the two and a half years of the war where he's in charge, he sacks no fewer than 217 generals. 
Now, if you're a general and you know that you could be sacked at the drop of a hat, there's no process to this. Cardona just says, oh, I'm not happy with how that operation went and sacks you. This is not something which gives people confidence. There is no scope for innovation. There's no scope for imagination, for trying new things when you may lose your job for anything or nothing. Um, 217 generals, um, I think it's uh, nearly 300 colonels. Uh, you could also be sacked preemptively. Uh, Cardona was prone to sacking people because he wasn't convinced that they were showing the necessary energy and enthusiasm for the job. I mean, it, it actually sounds a bit like Stalin's Russia to me, but people were people were just losing their job right, left and centre. And there's cases where, for example, in the middle of an operation that starts to go badly, the commanding officer abandons his post to travel back to HQ to explain to Cardona what's happened and to try to justify himself in the hope of saving his job instead of saying at his post and continuing to command operations. So this fear of losing your job and this climate of blame, which Cardona creates, is incredibly damaging to the morale of the officers. There is, everything that goes wrong is always the fault of the officer and, and they lose their job. So the, the damage that this does to officers' morale is huge. And I think it's not surprising that if your officers are very demoralized, they won't be doing a great job of inculcating high morale in the men under their command. Officer training is also a really important issue here. I went and looked at officer training manuals and at the courses, that, uh, the commissioning courses that officers took, and almost nothing was focused on how to boost the morale of your, uh, of your troops. There was very little attention paid to this. Um, officer training handbooks are absolutely fascinating. There's one handbook that's published in 1915, all new officers commissioned in 1915. They get a copy of this handbook, 25% of it is about dress regulations. Uh, another 25% is on things like how to care for your horse and under what circumstances you can claim a servant and also how to pack your rucksack. These are the kind of critical issues that in 1915, newly commissioned officers were receiving heaps of advice on. Um, how to actually care for your men's morale is kind of two lines. So the whole culture around what a good officer should do was not focused on caring for men's morale or even paying any attention to men's morale, officers were simply not given the message that this mattered. And again, this is a kind of institutional culture that's coming right from the very top. As the war goes on, we start to see the disastrous results of this in the battlefield. And what's really interesting is that the officer training courses change radically as the war goes on. By 1917, 1918, we start to see far less on how to pack your rucksack and far more on actually how to speak to the men under your command. A lot of the problems that the Italian army faces here are, are really social problems. The officers are recruited exclusive, exclusively from the aristocracy. The men under their command, many of them are peasant farmers, many of them are illiterate. Neither, the peasant farmers have never spoken to an aristocrat before, and these young aristocrats have never spoken to a peasant farmer before, and they really don't know how to talk to one another, sometimes even literally don't understand each other, uh, if we've got people speaking in strong dialects. As the war goes on and the army begins to see how much of a problem this officership culture is, they start to radically change the training courses to change the focus of them, and we slowly start to see results coming through on the battlefield. Um, <clears throat> The second area that's important is providing positive incentives. Again, at the start of the war, we can summarize the positive incentives that the army provided for men's morale very briefly by saying there were none. Um, there was zero effort to explain to ordinary soldiers what the war was for, why were they fighting, why should they care about it, what are they even doing, <clears throat> uh, right down to the level of what is this operation meant to achieve. There's no communication, there's no information being provided. In fact, Cardona believed that it was actively damaging to give too much information to the ordinary ranks because they didn't need to know, they simply needed to obey. He didn't want them thinking, he just wanted them to shut up and do as they were told. So there's no propaganda, there's no patriotic education, there's no explanation of the mission. What starts to happen is that at a sort of mid-rank level, officers begin to say, this isn't really working. Maybe we should try something new. At the top level, this policy does not change. But slowly through 1915, 1916, into 1917, 
um, brigade level officers, for example, begin to say, I think we ought to try and encourage the men in our unit and tell them what we're fighting for. Um, this may not seem like rocket science, but this was a radical new idea in the context of Italian society, which was still quite undemocratic, still very class-ridden. The idea of getting willing participation from ordinary citizens was seen as politically quite sensitive. There's still very much a culture of deference and of obedience, and so the army, in a way, is going against some very strong cultural norms here uh, to try and do that. When, in 1918, Cadorno is sacked, the new chief of general staff comes in, Diaz, he immediately says, we need to do this. We need to tell people what the war is about. We need to make an effort to get them on side. We need to have a concerted effort of propaganda and persuasion. We need to have trench journals which explain the war to ordinary people and bring messages of why we're fighting and how things are going to be better afterwards into uh, ordinary units. And so we see this huge transformation we also see a better effort finally to provide leisure facilities. There was almost zero leisure facilities provided in the first few years of the war. And here's where we're talking about sustaining motivation. How do we keep people motivated over a long period of time, not in battle, but when they're in training camps or when they're, uh, you know, they have a, a bit of time out of the lines? How do we do that? Sustaining morale. Actually, interestingly, it's the, the commander's, uh, the, the chief of general staff's daughter, Luigi Cadorna's daughter, Carla, who is only 17 or 18 at the start of the war, she says, why don't we try and create a system of sort of soldiers' huts with cinemas and newspapers and music and some kind of rest and relaxation? And that slowly gets rolled out through the army. Again, in 1918, after the disaster of Caporetto, the army command says, let's try and do this more systematically, and they begin to roll that out much more effectively. So they're learning lessons as they go along, but it really takes time. The two big ones for providing positive incentives are leave and the economic side, pay and pensions. Leave is obviously really important. Uh, why are you fighting if you never actually get to go home? Uh, when are you going to get this time off that you feel that you've earned? Uh, leave is a really important motivating factor. Everybody wants to go on leave. Interestingly, it's not as straightforward as provide more leave, improve the troops morale. The first home leave is provided at Christmas 1915. So men have been fighting since May 1915. Christmas 1915, they get home on leave for the first time. And actually, many of them return to the front more depressed than they were before they went. Because they've gone home and they've seen that all of their suffering and hardships are largely unknown and ignored by civilians. The distance between home and front it suddenly really comes through to them. Uh, they find that at home everyone's moaning about the price of bread and pasta uh, and they have no conception of what life is actually like in the front lines. And so even though everyone had been desperate to go home, when they return, actually morale, if anything, is lower than before they'd gone. But the real problem with leave is, again, back to who are the Italian soldiers? We have to come back always to this question of who is this policy for? Who are the majority of Italian soldiers? They're farmers. If you work on a farm... And that's the livelihood for your family and your children and your wife and possibly your aged parents. Is there any point going home at Christmas? What is there to do on the farm at Christmas? Nothing. When do you need to be at home? You need to be at home at harvest time. If you're not at home at harvest time, collecting the food that your family are going to eat, your family are going to be going hungry next winter. So nobody wants, I mean, yes, it's nice to be home for Christmas, but if you've only got 10 days leave a year, you want it at harvest time if you're a peasant farmer, not in the middle of winter when there's nothing to do on the farm. Now, this is, a, uh, I, I guess, a kind of obvious point, but it's too obvious for the Italian army in the First World War to have grasped straight away. They don't introduce harvest leave until 1918. Harvest leave is a transformation because now, for an ordinary peasant soldier, you know that you're going to get the leave that you need to do the jobs that need to be done on the farm. Spending Christmas with your family is nice. Making sure your family don't starve in the winter is quite a lot nicer. And what's really important here is that eventually the army figures out that what they need to be thinking about here is who are their soldiers? Where do they come from? What are they actually focused on in life? Those men need to be able to undertake all of their responsibilities, all of their duties, just because they're serving in the army. Their peacetime responsibilities have not gone away. The responsibility that they owe to their families is still there. And what's really going to make them willing to fight is to know that that's not 
causing suffering to their family, that that's not causing them to fail in their regular civilian duties. And we see this time and time again, that however, whatever's happening in their life at the front, men are constantly thinking about their families at home and the responsibilities that they have. How is the family doing economically? Have they got enough grain harvested for the winter? And also more personal concerns. People want to return home when their children are born. People want to return home. I found a guy who, whose sister got pregnant out of marriage. He wanted to return home to force the man to marry her. There's people who are constantly thinking about what are my responsibilities as a son, as a brother, as a father? And you know, my mum's sick. Is anyone there looking after her? If the army can find a way to allow men to reconcile those civilian duties with their military duty, that's when men are much more willing to accept and commit to their military duty as well. And that's where we've got this idea again of the dance between who are these people, what are the, the actual men that make up the army, and what is the army trying to do? And that's something that they finally begin to get right in 1918. The next part of this picture is discipline. Now, the Italian disciplinary system is the bit that people tend to have heard of because it is so horrific. And Cadorna inherits a fairly harsh system, and then he sort of turns it into overdrive. His very first order of the day, the, the day that Italy declares war, May the 24th, 1915, he says, we will win this war through iron discipline. That's his very first statement. And iron discipline to him means, uh, if you're an officer, getting sacked. But if you're on the ranks, it tends to mean, if you're lucky, hard labor, and if you're unlucky, execution. The Italian army executes far more of its own people than any other Western European army in the First World War. It actually issues over 4,000 death sentences, of which 750 are carried out. Uh, these are executions for cowardice, for desertion, for indiscipline uh, of various forms. And this was Cadorna's preferred means of proceeding. The idea in his mind, was that the only way to really make men fight was through terror. He explicitly said the men should be more afraid of the officers standing behind them than they are of the enemy. Otherwise, they will never advance. And uh, the regime that he created and promoted in his two and a half years in charge endeavoured to put this into practice. So we have 750 men who are executed who have been sentenced by military tribunals to death. Um, many people sentenced to uh, fairly long prison terms, sometimes to hard labor, sometimes to solitary confinement. In the first instance, they sentence people and they imprison them right away. Then they figure out that that could be a way of getting away from the fighting. So you might get a 20 year term that's postponed till the end of the war. So you have to stay at the front and keep fighting. And then when the war is over, you'll get your 20 year prison term. So there's a very brutal system, but the death penalty is always central to it. But actually, it gets worse, because these men who are executed after tribunals are, in a strange way, the lucky ones who have actually had some kind of due process, because Cadorna's preferred way of operating is through summary executions on the battlefield. Uh, he continually encourages the use of summary executions. Uh, he praises and promotes officers who carry out summary executions on the field. Uh, and he actually, in 1916, proclaims this publicly in July 1916, that um, the inexorable summary justice of lead, is, that's his phrase, uh, is the key way to keep men fighting as the war is grinding on longer than they had hoped, as the, uh, the Italians are getting more and more bogged down in these endless attritional battles, he proclaims the summary justice of lead is the only way to keep men going. Now, we still don't have, and we probably will never have, the precise numbers of how many men are executed in summary executions. We have at least 114 documented instances, but in many of them, uh, there are multiple victims. So best estimates are between two and 400 Italian soldiers are summarily executed on the battlefield. Um, and I could horrify you with um, depressing stories like a group of men who get trapped in no man's land with no food or water. And after they've been there for three days, they realize that they're closer to the Austrian lines than to the Italian lines. So they try to surrender uh, and are machine gunned by their own unit um, and so on and so forth. We don't need to depress ourselves too much. As I say, there's several hundred. We, we will probably never know the precise numbers. And even within summary execution, it gets worse. 
because some of these victims of summary execution were actually victims of decimation. In other words, selecting a certain number of people by lot and executing them at random, which Cardona believed uh, was something that all armies were doing, but which I've not seen any evidence for happening anywhere else. Um, <clears throat> and the idea here was uh, that if you couldn't identify the guilty party of an offence, so for example, somebody throws a stone at an officer from a big group of men, you can't work out who it is, then you just shoot one at random. Um, Alternatively, it could be um, a large group of people have been involved in an offence together and rather than executing a hundred of them, which might be a bit tricky even for Cardona to justify, you select maybe 10 and execute them. Uh, and these executions had to be performed by the offender's own unit for maximum impact. Um, and I've, I've not seen evidence of this sort of thing is happening anywhere else. This is just Cardona's own idea. He's very passionate about it and he believes that this is what's going to truly terrorized his own men into fighting better. Um, of course, it's deeply counterproductive. Um, it actually encourages desertion and draft evasion because, you know, why are you going to stay in the army uh, if it's treating you like that? And um, summary execution and, desertion and decimation are immediately abolished uh, by the new chief of general staff, Diaz, when he comes in at the, after Caporetto and, and through the last year of the war. Um, so the, this notoriously brutal disciplinary system um, doesn't seem to be remotely productive in terms, of, uh, in terms of more positive morale. It doesn't seem to be productive in terms of halting disciplinary offences either, because the numbers of disciplinary offences remain quite high. What it does do, of course, is it alienates people from the army. It alienates people from their officers who order these uh, offences. Uh, it's deeply demoralizing to units who are ordered to participate in firing squads uh, or to participate in summary uh, executions. So it's, it's incredibly counterproductive in all directions, I would say. Um, the fourth area and final area that I'm going to talk about briefly of the army's policies towards morale is what I'd call combat readiness. And what I mean by this is what can the army do to prepare people in every respect to fight and thus give them the confidence to perform well on the battlefield. Confidence is really important. A man who's going into battle believing that he knows what he's supposed to be doing and that therefore he will have a better chance of survival is clearly going to fight more effectively and have, more, uh, have higher morale than someone who has no clue what's going on, barely knows how to fire his weapon and doesn't really understand what the operation is all about. So combat readiness includes training, of course, weapons training, but also tactical training. It includes equipment. If you're going into battle and you know that your equipment is greatly inferior to the enemy's equipment, that is not going to be boosting your, your confidence. It includes physical health. Have you been fed? Are you well? Um, uh, have you got decent boots on? All of that. I'm going to link uniform, food, um, equipment, physical health, and training all together because they're all part of making somebody feel that actually they've got a decent chance, they're ready for this fight, they have an idea of what they're going to do, and that if they follow the training that they receive, they're going to perform okay. That the, the more they follow the training, the better their chance of survival. Those factors all feed into uh, creating a confident individual soldier and a confident unit. Once again, we have the story here of in the beginning of the war, the Italians are really very disorganized when it comes to things like training. The equipment is pretty crap. They're sending soldiers into the mountains with cardboard soles in their boots. Uh, they don't have enough rifles for everybody to even practice firing. So men get sent into the front lines who've only fired a rifle once or twice in their lives. And it, it, I mean, I feel like I'm just listing all these disasters, but there's a lot of disasters to list. And again, slowly people begin to figure out that this isn't working and training begins to improve. So if we compare the kind of training that the troops who are sent into the lines in 1915 receive with even what's happening by 1917, we can see a dramatic improvement as people really begin to see just how disastrous it is to not pay attention to training, whether it's tactical training, whether it's weapons familiarity. Um, whatever else it may be. And the same with uh, basic equipment, food supplies, and so on. Um, and a huge mm -hmm. amount of attention by the later years of the war is being paid to, are the rations getting through on time? What kind of rations are being received? Um, in some cases, right down to the micro level of, is the pasta cooked properly? Um, and uh, that's, I mean, food, for example, has a psychological effect as well, right? It's not just about, are you getting enough calories? It's also about the psychological impact of, are you getting food that is 
nourishing and also comforting and maybe even tasty. All of these things feed into the combat readiness criteria. And um, this is something which the army begins to figure out. Um, uh, of course, it also depends on resources, right? You can't train people to use weapons if you haven't got any spare weapons to train them on. You can't feed them decently if you haven't got the food available. So this is something where the army is also dependent on the state and on the society that is supporting it. It's not something that's wholly in the hands of the military institution. It is also reliant on the, the, uh, the resources that are available to the country as a whole, the finances that are available and so on. And uh, I'm not going to go into details about the Italian political side, but that's definitely a problem for the Italians here too. So how do Italians respond to this? That's the army side. What's the other side of the dance? Well, as I've said, about 60% of Italian soldiers in the First World War are peasant farmers. Many of them are illiterate. Schooling is only compulsory up to age 11, but many of them have only been in school till they're maybe six or seven when they're physically big enough, so a year or two of school, until they start being able to work on the farm because their farm needs them and they can't, their parents can't afford for them to be in school all the time. So many of them are illiterate. Um, even in the schools, the ones that have done their full schooling to age 11 may have been taught dialect rather than standard Italian, so they may not fully understand the orders that they're receiving from their officers who only speak formal aristocratic Italian. So we've got all of these communications problems. Um, we've got people who also never travelled around the country before. If you come from Sicily and you're sent up to fight in the northeast of Italy in these rocky mountain ranges, what is this country? What has this got to do with me? Why are we even here? Is this desirable land? You're fighting to conquer these mountains. What is it for? It's, um, it's a very disorientating experience. They don't know what the war is for in many cases. Uh, and they're really focused on their, their family concerns and on local concerns more than on anything else. They're devout Catholics. And for many of them, therefore, that means that war is anathema. The church in Italy is, is preaching mostly against the war in the first period. They're preaching messages of peace, of course. Uh, the Pope is not supporting the war either, and therefore many Italian Catholics are highly doubtful as to whether this is a good idea. And all of these things need to be taken into account when we think about what the army should be doing. How is the army going to take this nation of farmers, Catholic farmers, and turn them into effective soldiers? Well, it's not until it begins to think about them as Catholic farmers that they begin to do that effectively. And only when we, we, we understand, if you like, the raw material that we, can, uh, that we can see progress being made. What's really interesting is that although there is disobedience on occasion, although there are episodes of desertion, although there are various forms of indiscipline, the vast majority of Italian soldiers do their job. They do their duty. They might not like it, but they do it. They have internalized a conception of duty that is owed to the state, and they're mostly more or less willing to go along with it. If we look at the ones who don't, we can really see the calculation that's going on. When we look at deserters, there are many deserters in Italy, but what's really fascinating is that more than 50% of them spontaneously return to their unit. Now, desertion in Italy is not like, for example, if you were a British soldier in the First World War, you can't just go home because you're in France or Belgium. What are you going to do? You've got the English Channel between you and home. But if you're in Italy, you're fighting in the north, even if you're from Sicily, you could make it home. You can, if you get away from the front, you can hop on a train, you can get back to your family. And that's what they're doing. But more than 50% of them return to the front. Now, what does this tell us? What are they doing when they desert? They go home for a few days, they go home for a week, and then they go back to their unit. In some cases, it's because they're afraid. They're afraid that they're going to get caught and executed, and they think, do you know what? This isn't worth it. Let's go back. But mostly, they go back because they've done whatever it was that they needed to do. In other words, they've gone back to see their dying mom or, or to meet their new baby or to get the harvest in or to perform some kind of responsibility, to do something in their civilian life that needed to be fixed. And then they go back and they fight. In other words, they accept that they have this duty. They've internalized the obligation of military service, the obligation to fight in the war. They're more or less willing to do so. They are committed, but they also don't see that as overriding all of their other duties and all of their other responsibilities. They're civilians in uniform. And that civilian identity has to be integrated into what the rest of what they want to do and, and, and into their military identity as well. Um, so this, I, this question of balancing obligations is critical to how the Italian army endures the war. 
there are few who are enthusiastic. I mean, we could talk about the Arditi and the Alpini and these elite units who have an excellent fighting reputation, who are very committed and enthused. And there's some who desert and who don't want to fight at all or who try to evade their service. But the vast majority of them are not very enthusiastic. They accept their conscription. They mostly get on. They mostly do an okay job. But it's very conditional on being able to also fulfill their civilian responsibilities. So my argument for the Italians is that it's really about balancing of identities, which is critical to maintaining morale. And the sooner the army figures out how to understand the men it's actually got under its command, the better it's able to motivate and lead them. So to kind of pull back a bit, what does this mean in other contexts? What does this mean for PME? What does this mean in other wars? Well, I'm hoping very much that um, nobody in this room is about to go out and apply Luigi Cadorna's methods uh, to anything or anyone, um, and nor is anyone here about to go and try and lead a troop of early Italian, early 20th century Italian peasants into battle. But what I think we can see is an example, I would just suggest, of this idea of the dance, of how does the institution develop its policies, and then how do people respond? Who does it have to deal with? So a 21st century British soldier, to understand his or her needs, motivations, we have to think about the society that they're coming from, who are they, what has brought them to the army, in order for the army's policies to work or not work. If the army develops policy in a way which is disconnected from the people who are actually going to be on the receiving end of it, then clearly that policy isn't going to work as well as it ought to. And a policy that might work brilliantly in one context may be a total disaster in another if it hasn't thought about the other dance partner, if you like. So only when both the dance partners are in tune with one another to some extent um, can we find some music which is going to work for them both. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Wavel Room is free to use, but it's not free to produce. So head down to wavelroom.com and maybe donate us some money so that we can keep going and keep creating that content that we know you love. Thank you.